There's always this fear within organizations of not hiring IBM, of not going with the blue chip that is already available and existent and kind of betting on a player that may not be around a couple of months or years from now. And I think you need that backing and that halo from the leadership or from the C-level to actually say, you know what, and we actually want you to do that because that's kind of what change will look like for us. And that's what's going to make us competitive five years from now. That's Jeanette von Furstenberg, the founding partner of La Familia, a unique venture capital fund based in Berlin. Unlike traditional VCs, La Familia looks to connect old economy giants in Europe with young digital disruptors. So far, the fund has raised more than 100 million euro and invested in almost 50 companies, three of which are unicorns. Before La Familia, Jeanette worked for Ernst Young, Synthesis, and AXA. Not only is Jeanette active in the startup ecosystem, she also has a deep understanding of the historical trends that drive business and holds a PhD in philosophy and entrepreneurship. In today's episode, we'll hear how Jeanette and her team at La Familia are transforming the way traditional companies and startups build networks and work together to create radical change. This is Daniel Sachs, co-CEO of AppDirect, and it's time to decode new innovation in the old economy. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. Jeanette, I'm so honored to have you on Decoding Digital. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. I'm really honored to join you today. So we first got to know each other as you graciously hosted the Why Now conference in Germany, connecting multi-generational industrial leaders to tech startups. And many of those startups are actually disrupting or striving to disrupt the incumbents. So it's pretty interesting that you brought these two groups together. Can you share your vision for why bringing these groups together would be beneficial? Yeah, I think there's actually a lot to that they have in common, right? It's typically entrepreneurs that, you know, are very much in the process of running and growing their own companies. Um, what's interesting about that is typically if you put entrepreneurs face to face, they may have grown in a different generation, but they typically always have the best interests of their company at heart. And I think if you put them together in an intimate environment where all the management levels below that kind of fade away and it's really all about ideas and it's all about progress and it's all about change, then everybody opens up and that's how you bring them closer together. And I think that's very, very needed driver to kind of make digital transformation a reality here in Europe. It's very powerful. And I was so grateful to be there. And some of the relationships I built ended up being business contacts, friends, and it's really an incredible network. And many times in technology, we interface only online, especially in this era. But the importance of deep relationships is so important. Can you tell me when you're advising your companies and the people you interact with across Europe, how do they build this network and how do they get to know each other? It's an interesting question. I think the reason or part of the reason why Renee and I got together and said we need to do something about the ecosystem there is that they seem to be very separate for a long time, right? There was not many kind of interfaces where they would actually meet. And I think question is always, if you put two groups together, one has everything to lose, right? Because they're kind of at the height of their success and every potential change or disruption could mean a risk to the company. And if you look at startups, it's a very different dynamic, right? They have everything to win and everything to gain. And 
I think that's where typically in those different speeds and those different modes of emotion, you can create friction. And it's very important that you have like a trusted relationship environment where you can interact and where everybody opens up to actually embracing change and embracing potentially new or even disruptive ideas. And I think the idea was very much born from the way that we host friends as a family where it's really about intimacy. It's about trust. It's about also having fun together. It's about sharing memories. And I think that's kind of the base as to how why now came into being and also the way we try to now have our portfolio companies kind of be connected to potential customers, connect to potential partners. And I think it's really a very necessary aspect of our European ecosystem to bring these two groups into a closer codependency or co-relationship simply because I think Europe will only survive if we manage to kind of shift the existing value creation that is very much existent in our sort of many, many industry fields from process industry to manufacturing to automotive, et cetera, right? These are very, very native and rich industries where a lot of the knowledge is locked up in processes and industry-specific knowledge that is now being transitioned and being kind of formed into digital products. And I think the more those two generations of entrepreneurs kind of intersect and the more they actually cooperate, the stronger the outcome will be for Europe eventually. Certainly. We have a fundamental belief that digital transformation is not just about technology, it's about the people. And oftentimes it comes to those human relationships. And the example that you gave, you mentioned Renee. So for those listeners, we had Renee Oberman on the podcast earlier in the season, and he was formerly the CEO of Deutsche Telekom and is now a partner of Warburg Pincus and chairman of Airbus. But Renee and Jeanette hosted Why Now, which was a conference bringing together these different leaders. And it's just such an example of how people are able to open up. And Renee and I got to know each other when we were innovating at Deutsche Telekom and enabling them to digitally transform to offer cloud services. And those relationships are what really drives a proliferation of technology. And that's just what Jeanette did with La Famiglia. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you became a venture capitalist and your vision behind it? Yeah, super happy to. So I was always really driven and motivated by entrepreneurial vision as a major force of change in a way. I think what's really interesting, especially about, you know, seed stage companies is that they're almost like a seismographic, you know, anticipation for societal change and for what will actually manifest into an economic reality three to five years from now. And I think by being very close to that kind of pulsing element of what the future will become, you're automatically in a position where you have some degree of influence. I don't want to overplay it, right? But I think you take at least ownership of what this future could look like. I think that's from a very macro philosophical perspective. That's what, what drives me into the sector next to like working alongside very talented entrepreneurs that just have incredible energy and incredible kind of vision that deserves so much respect and deserves all the support they can get. And I think now that brings me to the support angle. When we first started with La Familia, now almost five years ago, the idea was very much to see where we could build bridges, especially for B2B founders. We could enable them to speak to partners in the industry, to test their product, to run initial POCs, kind of actually get customer feedback and validation on the products they were building. And I think Initially, what you see within the startup ecosystem, you typically have like, you know, a strong founding team and potentially great technology. You have what seems like a great and big market. But 
you're always missing, especially in the seed stage, you're always missing these kind of initial revenue validation points that, you know, larger investors are then looking for. And the earlier you can bring those to the table, the faster these companies typically get to early product market fit and from there to scale. And I think just doing that is or helping them build these bridges early on just is a better use of a, the capital invested and time is money, right? Also for, for these founders, the earlier they can actually get their product into motion, the more chances they stand also from an international perspective to really become the winner in their defining sector. And that's where La Familia really was created. So it's very much the essence of our platform is to connect established industry and the startup ecosystem and making sure we use the tailwinds we can bet from both sides to make a dent and a change for what is possible in Europe. I've been proud to watch La Familia grow over the years and you built up an incredible portfolio. So can you share some of the companies that you have in your portfolio? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So I think one of the more notable ones would be a company called Personio, which is an HR platform for SMBs, similar to Workday in the US, but for smaller and medium-sized businesses that is doing incredibly well. I think another one would be Forto, which is a freight forwarding company, essentially digitizing logistic workflows or the freight forwarding services, essentially, mainly now between Europe and Asia, but I think potentially also going global as a next step. And we've really seeded them. And it's especially for this company, it was so important to kind of get connections and warm leads as they scaled from the initial Amazon power seller to the smaller sized business to medium sized businesses to like larger scale businesses. And it's really important you kind of get the volume right. And you initially really needed the trust of entrepreneurs, essentially, who went to their freight forwarding <laughs> department and said, you know what, we may not give them 100% of our freight capacity, but we can give them 10% because I'm just actually curious to see what it will do to the transparency in my supply chain and what it will do to my freight costs and what it will do to the overall transparency and views we get from a shipper perspective. And I think hadn't we had the buy-in of these founders initially that kind of really made sure they elbowed this into their organization and worked that muscle, it probably would have been a lot harder for these guys to get to initial customers because there's always this fear within organizations of not hiring IBM, right? Of not going with the blue chip that is already available and existent and kind of betting on a player that may not be around a couple of months or years from now. And I think you need that backing and that halo from the leadership or from the C-level to actually say, you know what, we actually want you to do that because that's kind of what change will look like for us. And that's what's going to make us competitive five years from now. Yeah, and I think that was like a win-win, right? It was a win for the companies that embraced Forto early. And it's a win certainly for Forto as well because they've now become a really big player here in Europe and continue to scale at a massive speed. So that would be another example. And actually could keep going and going. There's so many, but I think these are two great examples to start with. Yeah, Forto is such an incredible example. What we've noticed when we're trying to drive digital transformation within an enterprise is that it takes a certain set of characteristics of an individual in order to drive that transformation. And we call those people digital heroes. Mm -hmm. And those digital heroes can exist at any part of the organization. In many cases, they can be the CEOs or the owners. Mm -hmm. In other cases, it could be people on the ground that are going to champion this innovation. To have a culture of innovation at a large enterprise, it does require some level of risk-taking and alignment. Mm -hmm. Ten years ago, when we were working with businesses in Europe, there were very few companies that had the commitment of both the executive leadership as well as the innovators on the ground to take that risk to work with a startup. Mm. But what I've found is that there's definitely been an acceleration 
in innovators in Europe recognizing that they need to disrupt themselves. Is that a trend that you've seen? And how often do your companies still face disruption or challenge? I think it's interesting to hear your perspective because you're obviously very established and you've been around for many years now. And I think looking at the learning curve that I've had, I think when we first started out five years ago, a lot of B2B companies we went to and we kind of confronted with a problem. They were like, well, that is all a B2C phenomenon, right? Like Uber and everything you're telling me about what's happening and disruption on the consumer side has nothing to do with my business, right? Because we're going B2B. And I think at the time, it was very hard for them to embrace the idea of how software is eating the world. I think now, like five years forward, what we're seeing is that that is no longer even a question, right? It's not even a question whether software is eating the world. It's like it has eaten the world and everything is being defined by technology these days. But it's no longer like a single vertical, but it's actually completely horizontal and going a lot across all layers of value creation. And I think that's where some people, and that goes to your point, Dan, around innovation mindset and culture. I think if you're open-minded, and I think most entrepreneurs remain curious until they're very, very old, right? And they kind of drive that curiosity into the DNA of their company. And then I think that's what really makes them remain competitive. We have a couple of people we work with where, you know, the founding entrepreneur is still very much up and running and maybe above 70 even, but they're still embracing change and they want to learn about what's going on. They may not understand the full depth of it, but they want to make sure that part of the people get it, right? To your point about the digital hero, I think that's one group. And then certainly you have the other camp that sees that as well, but is kind of in denial with regards to what it actually will mean for their business. Because it's still not really sensible, right? It's a little bit like popcorn. You put it into the microwave and for five minutes, nothing happens. And all of a sudden, everything explodes. And I think that kind of whole disruptive element, it's very hard for them to sense because they've kind of come from emotion. And I think that's an interesting historical fact. They've always grown by capturing markets. The whole innovation was always geared to kind of conquering something new, right? But they were never kind of confronted with like a disruptive innovation force. They just had to react to all of a sudden, right? And that just put the whole organization under pressure. And I think for them, it's much harder to actually get to that level of change. And I think another aspect of the mindset that I've observed in many cases is that if you look at post-war Europe, right, a lot of the companies that we see now being really, really successful were really formed then. And they were formed in a very decentralized fashion, especially in Germany, right? Like we have these hidden world market champions that sprout in the middle of the black forest. You would find like a world market leader that the brand, you know, but you would never find your way into that little village, which is great, right? And it certainly has nurtured our so-called Mittelstand that is so globally well-perceived. But I think what also is interesting about these types of companies is that They have very much grown from an idea of pattern-driven innovation, right? Like I come up with an idea, like I innovate around this little screw, and then this little screw becomes a huge success. I patent it for 20 years. I milk the cow. I develop the next screw, but I damn well make sure that I have the walls up. Nobody sees the drawings I make about my third screw. And like, you know, I definitely don't want to share any insights about that because that's kind of where my bread and butter will be born. And I think for these people to kind of transition in their mindset into like an open innovation ecosystem is terribly hard, right? It's it's so deeply baked into their DNA that when you tell them about a platform, they're like, even if they get the other platform, they're like, okay, we have to build our platform. 
it's like, no, it's not, you don't build your platform because it's very hard for you to build your own platform, but like try to understand what part of your value creation do you actually think you can retain in five years from now? And what part will just go away? And what is it maybe about what you're doing right now that there's so much core understanding and knowledge in the process that you could potentially transfer into some degree of digital service, digital revenue? And where is it that you may want to partner with a startup or invest into a platform that you then partner with, right? Like this whole mindset and ecosystem of innovation is something that is utterly foreign to them and that I think needs to change. A lot of enterprises that are cash flow rich and used to generating cash flow have a hard time taking bets and investing in partnering with third-party platforms that may not see a return in the next year or two. Do you see that across the industrial companies? And is that a barrier to their innovation? Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it. Even though I think that is even stronger within like just traditional investors. Like I think what's interesting is that the US ecosystem has kind of produced so many winners already that I think that there's a very kind of broad base of investors that have just seen success of the asset class over and over again. So they just are very eager to kind of participate and are very much attuned to the concept of future discounted cash flow. And in Europe, it's very much not the case. Like I think everybody that has be it an industrial company or a private investor or an institutional, they kind of always use to the notion of cash flow based investing. And they will buy like a running company and they will potentially buy a competitor, but then they want to have a multiple that is somewhat in a size or range that they that they feel comfortable with. And I've heard this over and over again. Oh my God, valuation is crazy. Like, you know, why are you trading at a 10x multiple to revenue? That's insane. And I think people have said that over and over again. And I think the this grand slam nature of really large tech platforms and how they have evolved over time and how they just keep getting bigger once they hit scale and escape velocity is something that is just very foreign to our understanding because we haven't seen that many in front of our doors yet, right? Like I think you look to the US and you feel like this is, you know, a very different kind of unicorn landscape, if we even want to call it that. And what we have here is a substantial production companies that know how our products are shaped and done. But for them, this whole digital nature of products and the way they work is nothing that they've seen manifested yet in success stories to the same degree. It's interesting. I've observed many more companies in Europe becoming global leaders, very much so because of your local investments and cultivating of an ecosystem. Is that something that you see on the ground as well as more efforts to start global companies from Germany? Yeah, if you look at the founders we're backing, a lot of them are actually, I think maybe one third are actually guys that went maybe did their undergrad in Germany or Europe, but then they all went to the US, right? And they were kind of semi-US educated, went to Stanford and then typically worked like one of the big fives. If that's where they kind of smelled the air of digital products and scale. And I think they've all kind of come back to Germany or Europe to kind of double down on the opportunity that we have here. And I think for us, the opportunity is very much based in the fact that we have a very strong university landscape. We have an incredibly strong educational ecosystem across Europe, really, right? It's not as centralized as in other countries, but especially if you look in Germany, we have at least 15 technical universities that have, you know, absolutely global significance in the research that they do. So I think that is one fundamental building block. And I think the second fundamental building block that these founders kind of relate to is the fact that you have these companies that we mentioned before, and all of them are typically 
either nurturing talent within them through the apprenticeship programs that they have, but also then go again to these universities and partner with them, right? And they kind of have co-development programs. And that just creates a very, very specific process understanding and process knowledge that is really needed in order to build a digital product in the space. And I don't think you would have the same degree of understanding, the same degree of ability to potentially disrupt like the chemical industry or automotive manufacturing, because it's so complex that you really have to understand what you're doing. Technology is not so much a differentiator. The differentiator then really becomes that process know-how. And then you build it on top of TensorFlow maybe, right? Or you have tool sets and infrastructure, but that is more of just the enabler or the building block, like the core differentiator of what will make them successful and what will give them dependability is that degree of understanding and being able to translate that into the nature of digital products. And I think that's what we've seen mainly is like really that being the fundamental driver for our ecosystem build up here. Very powerful. On your website, it says, we believe contrarian investments outperform conformist investments. Why do you believe that's the case? I believe that if you look at a lot of the founders, if you look at great leaders in general, they have an ability to see 10 or 15 years into the future, right? They kind of have a fundamental, I would almost call it like a reality distortion field around what the future should look like. And then where they become strong leaders is the ability to kind of just break that complexity down into something that we can grasp today and that we think we can somewhat follow them, not only us as investors, but also the team and potential customers. And I think what's interesting is that if you listen to some of these ideas now, they seem almost surreal, right? And I think lots of people would maybe listen to them and it's a little bit like an art painting, right? Like if you look at a Picasso drawing, some people will say, oh my God, this doesn't look like a bird or like a woman. But then you could also look at it and say, well, there's actually just a new language there. There's something that's being created here that is utterly unique and that hasn't been done before. And I think that's what you do as a seed stage investor. You kind of have to tune into the vision and always assume you're the stupidest person in the room and that these people really have something very, very unique to what they're doing. And obviously you're mindful of asking all the right questions, but typically the best entrepreneurs have thought about them 10 times over before you even ask them. And I think that's what I find incredibly unique and powerful. And that's where I think often these ideas seem contrarian in the beginning, because in the beginning, not a lot of people will actually be willing or able to follow them. And I think that's where the stage is particularly exciting and particularly interesting. I love your art analogy. I know you did your dissertation on art and entrepreneurship in the Renaissance. Are there any timeless lessons that were just as true then as they are today? I think there's so many, to be honest. I really think like we're living almost through a new Renaissance now. I think one thing that I thought was incredibly interesting is the notion of the word disenio, which is a term that was originally used by artists to kind of describe their, describe a drawing, right? It, was, it would be called a disenio. But what they also meant by it is actually the transformative process that you actually do whilst kind of taking an idea that is very ephemeral at the beginning, and then you transform that into something that others can see and others can feel and others can touch. I think so that is actually, in essence, what an entrepreneur does, right? In the beginning, it all feels ephemeral. It all feels like it's just building blocks and just like little facets of something that could become a reality. So I think that's one term that I've always loved and I've taken to heart since my dissertation. And I think 
just going a little bit more concrete into the Renaissance, what was really interesting or what spurred this whole ecosystem at the time was very much the fact that they had lowered the barriers to entry for different crafts, right? Before that, if you were born into like a wooden craftsman family, then you would only do wooden craftsmanship, right? But you weren't allowed to paint or you weren't allowed to weave or do other crafts. And I think in that sense, Leonardo da Vinci is like the best example of what happened when you actually unleashed someone and allowed them to actually take a given skill set and given profession that they have learned in one field and just apply that idea to other areas, but they just intersect with other areas. And therefore, you had this very strong boost of cross-pollination and that spurred trade, right? That just made them a lot more innovative and in selling and buying goods. And from that kind of initial wealth that was generated, they had the urge to kind of say, hey, now we're also rich and how do we make sure we can show that in an appropriate manner? And I think art was in the beginning, definitely the initial instinct was about like, you know, we just hire the best artists. And by being wealthy and by then inviting this global guild of artists into Florence and Siena at the time, you all of a sudden had this incredible density of talent that was kind of really rapidly innovating. And if you look at the whole way art history in the time evolved, it just made this huge giant leap step forward. And by having this increasingly dense competition of artists, you also had like a higher intersection or a lot more meetings that took place between patrons and artists. Because at the time, the artist was not so much considered the genius yet. He was more actually the craftsman that was being hired by the patron, right? And the patron in that sense was often the entrepreneur. And I think the Medici then are a great example of how they almost became like, there's a term in German to say congenial. I don't even know how that would translate into English, but it's almost like this way of, and there are a lot many letters between Cosimo de' Medici and Donatello, for example, where they really talk about the nature of the painting, what they want it to be and what they want it to look like or at the given famous door. And it's that type of relationship that unfolded there. And there are many letters stating of how they spend the whole dinners together and how the dinners were always populated by people that were not purely bankers or not purely artists. It was just this wild mix of scientists and craftsmen and artists and entrepreneurs. And if you then look what that did to the way the Medici operated as entrepreneurs, it was really interesting, right? They didn't really invent something new, right? The bill of exchange existed already 150 years ago before they actually just said, hey, we were not allowed to officially give out credit, but that material, that bill of exchange would actually allow us to give out credit without this being considered a sin, right? Which is why before that, everybody would turn to just the Jewish community for credit, which was very much forbidden. But right? all of a sudden, they took this invention and they saw how an existing product could basically be used as a means and as a lever to accelerate their own business, right? And that was kind of the key element that really boosted their entire banking system and banking infrastructure across Europe. And I think just taking that analogy, it's really interesting to see how artists operate in exactly the same way, right? If you say like a painting, well, it's always kind of paint and canvas or whatever. I think the materials don't necessarily change so much. It's more about like, what is it that they actually see different? They have a different perspective, a different facet with which they view the world. And I think that's really what made the Renaissance. And that is also essentially what defines our tech ecosystem now, right? It's all code, if you like, right? But it's the way they kind of use that as a means to express something new and to redefine the way we live, the way we work, the way we interact as humans. And I find that utterly fascinating. 
It's so fascinating. In, in Silicon Valley, we really saw people come together in an interdisciplinary way. There's a technology and entrepreneurial renaissance. But now I definitely feel like it's much more global. Do you believe that the location still matters? Or do you believe we're seeing a global renaissance in terms of innovation, creativity, and technology? I actually think it's a completely global renaissance. And I think that's what's so exciting about technology is that it's somewhat like code is really lingua franca, right? That kind of is like a way to tie talent together in a global fashion, in a global way. And I think that's one of our theses also as a fund. We've been investing into the future of work as we call it already since five years, right? And looking at a company like Deal and in our portfolio that actually promotes or allows you to basically hire employees all over the world and tie them into your payroll infrastructure and just making sure you're compliant with local rules, et cetera, which has always been an impediment to kind of this type of global scale. But I think it's just the rapid growth of that company is basically just an index on how fast this global workforce and this global talent is becoming a reality. And I find that actually really beautiful. I think it's, it's a great way to see teams that interact from all over the world, from India to Israel to America and across different time zones, across different continents with different cultural backgrounds, but they're all kind of unified by common mission and a common vision, which is what is so great about really strong founders. They can do that, right? They can kind of rally these very different people behind them and give them the North Star to which they're kind of bringing in the entire capabilities. It's a beautiful evolution to see. Well, Jeanette, it was such a pleasure chatting with you. Um, so many topics. I can see your passion for connecting people and for entrepreneurship and for creativity and for art all coming through. And our viewers are going to really enjoy this. So thank you again for joining. Thank you so much, Dan. It was good to see you. Good to see you too. On the next episode of Decoding Digital. When you go deep on a vertical, there is huge opportunity to expand wallet share and expand your average revenue per customer over time. And furthermore, I think what's become really clear over the years is that you can drive much more efficient customer acquisition economics in a vertical play versus a horizontal play. Co-founder and CEO Clio, Jack Newton. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.